0: That one sexy listener in the Canary Islands is like, (laughs) those guys are crazy.
1: (laughs) Hey, out there, whoever you are, you're sexy. Yeah, we love you, Canary Islands. We like you, dude. Petri Dish is a product of Petri Dish Media, all rights reserved. Petri Dish is a science comedy podcast and should not be used as medical advice. Do not get medical advice from a podcast. And therefore, as a free man... I take pride in the words, ish bin ein. Science! Science! (laughs) Science! I know that human beings and science can coexist peacefully. This without finis.
0: Guys, welcome to Petri Dish. I'm Nathan. I'm Sean. And you guys may have heard in the news all sorts of things like someday we'll have a vaccine. <laughs> Maybe Harvard will save us. Lie. Harvard always fucks up. No. But 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 really like, you know, clinical trials is an expression that gets thrown around all the time in news and especially right now. And I kind of had this epiphany while I was reading one. I thought, what is a clinical trial? Sure. Like, like, really? Like, yeah. what exactly is a clinical trial? Why do they take so long? We've touched upon this stuff a little bit with our vaccine section, but I went to my brother very sexy immunologist type, Sean David Allen. Yep. And guest star on the show. <laughs> and I bowed down to him. I prostrated myself and I said, Sean, please explain to me the structure of clinical trials.
1: <laughs> yes. And then I decided I would actually respond to his request for once. He bequeathed unto my frail mind and body. <laughs>
0: The answer to my question. What really are clinical trials? How are they structured? Why do they take so fucking long?
1: COVID (laughs) Yeah. I think all of you all are interested in what the whole situation is with clinical trials, and so this episode we're going to get into it. Yeah.
0: Clinical trials good, bars bad. (laughs) Stay away from bars for now, guys.
1: So what actually are clinical trials? Okay. There's a lot of different kinds of clinical research, which is to say research that's done to try to figure out stuff related to human health that would actually matter to like doctors. Okay. Right. And then what's a trial? It goes from old English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it's from, uh, what were those bastards that were running around in France? Uh, the, Normans? The, Car- uh, the Carolingians? Yeah. And, oh. and, and salic law
0: i think the yeah trials. i guess that's true
1: i think i heard it's a germanic thing <laughs> well anyway <laughs> sorry that, that was bullshit okay so it's a way of being able to collect this research that matters to doctors and there's a lot of different kinds there's stuff like observational studies which look at like exposures and outcomes where right. you're not really you're not actively doing anything right right Unlike the experiments we talked about in a couple past episodes. (laughs) Right. Yes, yes. Like Tuskegee and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More Um,
0: active role, (laughs) not just observation.
1: Yeah, although Tuskegee is interesting because they very actively kept those patients from getting treated, which is a weird mix of evil observation and it's a unique type of uh, clinical trial called evil clinical trial. (laughs) (laughs) It's a (laughs) subcategory. Yes. So, what we're talking about today are experimental clinical trials where you're actually going in and you do some shit and try to see what happens. And so there are clinical trials for drugs and not just drugs, but also different kinds of treatments and things. You can have a clinical trial to see... Are outcomes better if people are on ventilators or not? Does IQ increase or decrease with hydroxychloroquine? <laughs> always increase, it always all increase. the way up to galaxy brain size. <laughs> all <the way> up.
0: <laughs> As anyone knows, Donald Trump said is so much bigger now.
1: <laughs> Elon Musk too, I think. Uh, oh boy, that guy micro- threw <laughs> his hat in for for hydroxychloroquine. That guy's microdosing hydroxy. <laughs> all right. So not all clinical trials are equal, and some of them are better designed than others. I think that's become outstandingly clear during this COVID pandemic. But we'll go a little deeper into that later, right? Right, exactly. So one of the first set of terms people will hear when they're talking about clinical trials is what phase it is. Mm. Okay, they'll hear like, phase one clinical trial, phase two clinical trial. But without knowing what those phases mean, that information is kind of useless, and you don't really know what to expect out of that clinical trial. Okay, so how do we
0: take a drug from Paul Atreides to full-blown Timothy Chamele? <laughs> how do we get it from phase one to phase four Chamele?
1: Right. So before you even have the clinical trial, there's what's called preclinical studies. That's the kind of shit that you do in mice and everything. Okay. And then maybe you'll do it in ferrets if it's an immunology study or mm. non-human primates. Why? Why ferrets for immunology? Ferrets, uh, their immune system is much more like humans than mice. That's interesting. Yeah. And then sometimes we 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 fuck up
0: some primates too, right?
1: Yeah, for a lot of other treatments, non-human primates like macaques are the their body weight is still lower than humans, mm-hmm. but the relationship between drug dose and body weight and where it goes in your body is much more similar to humans than for a lot right. of other
0: animals. Are there any limits on who we're allowed to do tests on? Like, can we just get some silverback
1: gorillas and screw <laughs> them up? Like, there's, like a there's a lot of Harambe. <laughs> <and laughs> <remember her. laughs> <laughs> we should always remember Harambe. <laughs> yeah, there are limits for sure. Right. Uh, for example, chimpanzee work has basically been phased out right they're just like a little too similar to us they also commit genocide and mass murder so yes Yes. (laughs) you know it's difficult because there is a tension in these kinds of experiments between what we feel comfortable what sorts of animals we feel comfortable experimenting in and their rights right what what kind of rights we want to ascribe to living things right and Thomas uh,
0: Jefferson very famously did not think the Declaration that of events <laughs> applied to animals, but we've—I I think we're over what TJ thinks about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. TJ originally had an asterisk. So I was like, no hippos. Yeah, Thomas is canceled. He's <laughs> yeah, over, it's so. Tom's canceled.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but look, ah. I think this tension is real and it exists. And there's some people who are very much on the side of ending all animal experimentation. There's a whole diversity of opinions on that yeah and i think a lot of them make sense yeah but there is a balance right now that we try to find between being able to make biomedical discoveries that help humans and save human lives and the suffering that we impose on animals when we experiment on them how do you feel about it where's uh, your limit you're like i don't want to do any more of this stuff on this level of similar to human my preference would be if we poured a lot of money into modeling and cell work so Mm. that we could develop cell lines and computational models to be able to way better predict how the outcomes from cellular work will affect people. Right. And if it got to a point where the prediction was as good as non-human primate studies provide us, as mouse studies provide We us. could phase out studying on animals. I, I would prefer world. if we phase out all animal studies. Two
0: problems. while well, Crossfire. Okay, I'm Tucker Carlson here. Oh, first of all, makeup. <laughs> <laughs> How are we supposed to do makeup on cells? I need makeup. Second. Second. Okay. Osmosis Jones. What? Cells yeah. have souls too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not good ones. We can That's experiment true. on cells. I don't mind That's that. Actually, Society cells are born bad mm-hmm. and are made good by society mm-hmm. yes very hobbsy and i like it yes
1: yeah i'm very much on Hobbes' side you are johannes for- adams <laughs> over here okay wow fuck what a digression okay but the point was there are preclinical studies and then once you've gathered enough evidence that you want to know hey we're ready to move this into people we want to know what effect this has in people you start with phase one okay phase one the first kind of clinical trial in humans is usually pretty small. It's usually 20 to 100 people. Sexy. Okay. And the main goal is to figure out the toxicity of the treatment. I was going to do something for this. Oh.
0: Face, face, face. One. We're on phase one. Phase one. Phase one. you are fucking late. GTA (laughs) Five phase one channel. That that is later shit. I'm sorry. You just like you just roll into things so quickly. (laughs) I wanted the
1: transition to be smooth.
0: (laughs) All right. Okay, wait, wait. We're on phase
1: one. Okay, suits us. Back, Sean. Tell me about phase one. Oh, okay. We're redoing (laughs) my part. Okay. I think I don't think we re-edited though. It's the first kind in humans, usually pretty small, 20 to 100 people. You're starting to sound like Matt Barry. I like it. Phase one, 20 to 100 people. (laughs) The main goal is to (laughs) figure out the toxicity of the experiment. I like it. (laughs) You can use healthy people here, because you aren't really looking to see whether the drug treats anything. It's just to see if it's toxic in people. So,
0: see, that... uh, that Stacy made a face, and I'm with her. That feels backwards somehow, so... Like, what, do you just kill people in this trial? Like, what if it's toxic? You just,
1: like, slaughter folks? So we, we before you did this, you did preclinical studies. Okay, so we know right. it doesn't kill ferrets. Ferrets, yeah, non-human primates, mice, yeah. whatever you did in those animals, you usually also do a dose escalation study to find what's called the maximum tolerated dose. Gross. And then we have equations that say, okay, this dose in mice is usually in the ballpark of this dose in humans. Do we call that MTD? Like, yeah, do we- you do. Okay, MTD. so my MTD for tacos
0: <laughs> is infinite. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> There's no amount of tacos that you could just mainline straight into your van. For
0: mom, it is surprisingly Del Taco Tacos, which was a very surprising twist.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, so yeah. it's the type of taco and not the volume of
0: taco. For me, it's Suadero at Taco no de in the airport, but for mom... Just like, she can eat infinite Del Taco tacos. You give her oh, wow. like a soft shell taco from a taco taco, she just throws it out of your head. <laughs> He's like, don't give me that shit. I want hard shell.
1: <laughs> He's like, wow. Kills a Del Taco. Del Taco. I don't think I've had Del Taco in a long time. I had it for the first time with mom. Wow, <laughs> like,
0: okay, but anyway, so my MTD for tacos is infinite. We have to figure out the MTD for humans
1: of various crazy shit like hemlock treatments or whatever. Well, so we figure it out for some other animal. We don't really go searching for the maximum tolerated dose because that of people, would like. imply at some point killing a person. Yes, which scientists like to do, but are now constrained <laughs> by society. Right? There's <laughs> right. all these ethical rules yeah. and stuff. Yeah, um, <laughs> Obama's America. It was so much easier. <laughs> yeah, twenty years ago. Yeah. No. Um, yes. So, so Dick Cheney would sit in. Usually, you set up some doses that seem safe in other animals, but people are different than other animals, and so every once in a while, you will find that there are doses that were safe in mice that are not really that safe in people, okay? So how can that be the case? Oh, yeah, so... I guess, like, in a way that sounds stupid, because our biology is probably different, but like, I don't know, don't we have all the same chemicals and crap? Right, so there are two main differences. One difference is that we do on a kind of fundamental level, have a few tweaks to different proteins and everything like that, that can change the affinity for drugs, how quickly they're broken down in the liver, where, what organs they go a little bit more to, a little bit less to. How many of those are from Monsanto? <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, I mean, so the point is on a biological level, we can be different enough that there is a right. biological difference. Okay. But the other thing is that people can talk. And they can tell you what their symptoms are. Oh, right. Whereas a mouse is just kind of like, eee! or yeah. it's dead. So if a mouse has a headache, it's actually kind of hard to tell, right? Right. There's not a lot of outward signs of headache in Except mice. Except for you. You're like the Cesar Milano mice. <laughs> like a mouse whisperer. Uh, so actually, yeah. if you spend enough time with mice, you can tell when they're in some kind of like non-life-threatening pain. They have, like, certain ways they scrunch up their faces and stuff and, like, certain ways that their fur gets on their back.
0: It's funny how when we were children and I was socially awkward, I felt like you understood people. (laughs) And now you understand mice. It was just training for my mouse work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That was
1: you being Uh, uh, nonverbal. Listeners,
0: you don't know, but Sean was known as king of the Asians in high school. Because he had, like, this awesome group of friends who are mostly Asian and, like, one white dude. And Sean was great at DDR. But not too great, because that's, like, what the nerdy kids do. What the fuck does that have to do with what we were just talking well, about? Well, it's just right? interesting how, how little you know about people now. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how much you've traded that for, for knowledge about mice.
1: Yes, I, I have significantly regressed in my knowledge of social interactions.
0: Okay, but so we we do preclinical clinical trials. We give these drugs to humans and... For some reason sometimes they don't work as well in humans or they have unexpected effects. Right. Right. What are those
1: effects or like what do we call those things? What are we trying to study here? Right. So they're usually called adverse events. And adverse events are basically when something bad happens that you didn't you didn't want to have happen when you get the drug. Right. Okay. And <laughs> that can be a lot of different things. That can be things like fatigue, that can be like headache. A narrow urethra. Watch the like lot, King of the Hill. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I have a narrow urethra.
1: So usually they're graded. There's like grade one, grade two, and then there's like severe. And then grade four is like the danger zone. So okay. it's like pe- People life threatening. Wow. Okay. Okay. How many people die in phase one clinical trials? Not that many. Okay. Not okay. usually. Okay. That's you, good. But, but every once in a while you will have uh, clinical trials where you have people get severe, severe adverse events. And then they have to discontinue the clinical trial. Wow. That certainly has happened. How many... Who the, Who's like the crazy bastard who signs up for these? Well, uh, they do have a tendency to skew a little bit younger. Right. So kind of younger, healthy derps. So it's another way that we fester on the basic inequalities of our society. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. No, the, the, <laughs> the ethics of clinical trials is a complicated and ongoing bioethical discussion. I tell you what, about like uh, Ezekiel Emanuel... He has his opinion, and it's vote Joe Biden. <laughs> there's like there's like a balancing between, you know, paying people, not paying people, only volunteer work. Yeah, because if you are paying people, are you exploiting people who are down on their luck, economically speaking? Is it fun? Like kind of... <laughs> is it is it fun? Is it sad? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> is, is it like a kind of coercive sort of element to forcing them into testing drugs? And the um, answer, as per usual, is like, shut up, we're trying to test <laughs> drugs here. <laughs> but in any case... This phase, phase one, typically weeds out about 30% of drugs. Wow, okay. So that's 30, a lot of 30 that's percent of the time. Some people get hurt enough that the trial needs to stop, right? okay? And that usually takes a few months. Wow, okay. Typically, and, that, and
0: that few months is basically waiting and observing. Yes, so it's not something that you could really ditch
1: if you want to make a drug that like is safe.
0: Right. I'm building up to the COVID stuff, basically.
1: <laughs> yeah. So usually they take a few months and sometimes that is giving them a dose and then waiting a little bit to see what happens. But a lot of times it's giving them several doses because your plan to treat, uh, you know, cancer often involves like weekly doses right? a dose every three days or something. Maybe even some other type of treatment. Huh? Or do we try to keep it as controlled as possible? So sometimes the phase one clinical trial will have multiple branches Mm. where it'll be like, okay, this branch is a placebo branch, and this branch is drug A, and this branch is drug A plus B. This branch
0: I date Tally. This branch I date Miranda.
1: (laughs) Even though she's vacuous, she's still hot. Aw, she's not that vacuous. (laughs) This is Mass Effect,
0: everybody. (laughs) (laughs) In this branch, I tried to date the amphibian bro who talks fast, but it turns out there's not an option, so I blew my whole playthrough. Oh, the Mordin.
1: the, the Sallian or whatever kind yeah, of yeah yeah. yeah 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 that's the name of it. boy,
0: I wish that company didn't eat it eat it and die. Am I right? <laughs> I really liked those games. Me
1: too. Me too. Andromeda like, was a little rough, but yeah, I kind of wish that uh, if
0: someone just remade KotOR, I would pay fifty dollars to play that again. But like, I tried to play the original, and it's just like I, I hate to say it. It's just too old.
1: (laughs) That's true. That's true. The the way that it's like a semi-turn-based kind of... Yeah. It's It's kind of clunky. Um, Yeah. Petri Dish, a gaming comedy podcast. Thank you, everybody. If there was a market... There's not a market for us (laughs) anyway. (laughs) But if there was a market for it, I'd do it. There's already many very good gaming podcasts out there. Grief Burrito, Controller Disconnected. Lamer Gamer Podcast. I'm Look shouting them all out. lining your
0: pockets with all these gamer shout-outs <laughs> oh, yeah, all, you didn't even all, tell me.
1: All, all the payments that I'm getting from these other indie podcasts.
0: <laughs> okay. But, okay. So phase one, we've weeded out 30% of drugs. Maybe sometimes we kill some people. Not usually. Not usually. But so what happens when we're done with these
1: 20 to 100 people? Right. So in the investigation in phase one, you're not only looking at toxicity, you're also trying to get data on what's called pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. Dude, I've been trying to get you to say those two words for like (laughs) 10 minutes. (laughs) You like that, huh? Sounds good to you? Yeah. Okay. So pharmacokinetics is about the ADME of a drug, which is uh, an acronym. It stands for absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion.
0: Oh, I had a thing for this too. Yeah, do it. ADME. ADME.
1: That's it. Add me. (laughs) Okay. Now people are going to remember it. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion. This is all about the drug. So the absorption part is about the drug entering into your system. So if it's a pill that you take, you know, it getting into your small intestines and then actually going into the tissue, right? Distribution is talking about where all over the body the drug goes, right? Right metabolism is about the drug breaking down. Sexy. And then excretion is about how you eventually remove the drug and the metabolism products from your body.
0: Okay. And all these things between animals and humans could end up being different, right? Like, Yeah,
1: they can. And both animals and humans do all these things. Right. But, you know, what percentage of the drug gets absorbed? Where does it distribute to the most? Right. All of that stuff can differ between humans and animals. So you try to gather all of the clinical data you can on that. And then also pharmacodynamics. Okay. Cool. I like that word too. And, you know, with this, you're looking at the relationship between drug concentration, wherever it is, and its biological effects. So that has to do with stuff like over time, when you take the drug, it's buildup in right. some kind of tissue. Our
0: dad is now 50% ibuprofen. <laughs> Does that affect the dynamics of his
1: body? And also the buildup of tolerance right. is something that comes into pharmacodynamics. So those are things that you try to investigate in phase one. Okay, we're being kinetic, we're being dynamic.
0: Now let's take a break. If the drug passes phase one, what happens
1: in phase two? Yep. The following is an actual advertisement. Today's episode of Petri Dish is presented to you by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. It provides podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so that you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as a member and you can too. It's really easy. You just need to apply to become a member and you're immediately connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's at podgo.co, p o P-O-D-G-O d g o.co.
0: So, we've just talked about phase 1. Now, let's move on to phase 2. two, 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 two. I'm Kai Risdal. and we're talking <laughs> about phase phase 2 on NPR. Is that what you think
1: marketplace sounds like?
0: Like a sportscaster? Basically, hey, the market, it's alive. The market is a single human. All right. Uh, But anyway, so Sean, tell me about phase two clinical trials. Okay.
1: The market's down because people are dying. Who thought? I hate this. Okay. so, So yeah, phase two. Basically, we know now how much drug starts to make you feel really shitty. Right. Okay. We have
0: weeded out the real
1: bad boys Right, and we have some information about how long it sticks around your body And what toxic side effects you might feel right. So now we want to know, hey, does this amount of drug or a similar amount of drug Actually do anything to help oh, your disease? Oh, so, that's Okay, so phase one, we know that it won't kill you Right
0: Or have adverse effects Phase two, is it actually helpful?
1: Right, and so phase two, you still look at pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics to try to find an optimal dose in between toxicity and effect, where you actually want to try to do something. This is kind of
0: a quantum leap situation where we want to stop those two companies before they take over Mars. That's just what they sound like. <laughs> Pharmaco Connects and Pharmaco Dynamic. Come on, those sounds like sci-fi villains. Yeah, sure. Those guys purposely let the mining ship go to the alien nest and then bring back
1: aliens. Okay, but fucking Sigourney Weaver dude does not fuck around. That's true. In the show Fringe, one of the mega corporations is massive dynamic. And Pharmacodynamics dynamics <laughs> just sound exactly. Doesn't right. Massive Dynamic just sound like a really thick, nerdy d- to you <laughs> like <Yes>. massive
0: <laughs> like, yeah, yeah like, no, that's, that's like that's like Elon Musk's like men's rejuvenation company is massive <laughs> dynamics
1: <laughs> for hair plugs and penis extensions yeah dude I see their ads all over 4chan all right <laughs> <laughs> so these trials phase two trials are bigger and involve people that are actually sick with the thing that you're trying to oh treat. shit okay. okay typically they involve like several hundred people in a phase two when trial.
0: did they innovate this system was it like penicillin or something Well,
1: it it, kind of organically evolved over the 20th century. I think in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there was a lot of work to kind of more formally standardize what kinds of information gathering the FDA wanted to really get to know if a drug is good or not. Right.
0: They were looking at Tuskegee and were like, hey, guys. Maybe we should
1: figure out science,
0: <laughs> right? Like, maybe we should do science in a science
1: I mean, there, there are a lot of ethical considerations right. that got written into the guidelines for right. clinical trials.
0: I'm sure there's some Republican back then who's like, no, like, science has to fuck people to <laughs> save my life. Like, this kind of feels in part, like, obviously it's good for empiricism, but it's also an ethical system, right? Like, it's trying to minimize the damage we do to people as
1: we innovate. Yeah, and, you know, the ethical discussions around clinical trials and how they're structured continue to this day, right? There are still bioethical debates about how to best inform patients whether or not certain kinds of drugs or certain kinds of illnesses can be treated with placebo without being unethical, for example. Right, I and mean, like because that. there's people like you who want to find ways to use cell cultures to test drugs instead of, of animals, right? So usually phase two trials can take something from a few months to a couple of years Depending on the disease and the outcome you're looking at. Like if if you want to know, does this cure the disease or something? It kind of depends on what the disease is like. Right. But if you have some other kind of measure for an outcome, like tumors getting smaller or something like that, then sometimes you can find out faster.
0: Okay, well now let's say I'm trying to stop a global pandemic. (laughs) How quickly can I do... What shortcuts can I take here?
1: Right, I mean, I think that's a really good question because actually... You know, the Pfizer, for example, just published data on a phase one slash phase two, like kind of hybrid clinical trial that they did.
0: Because, you know, Donatello Iglesias, he can't get his hopes up even more. He can't get him up. You know, what if Joe Biden loses and we don't have a clinical trial soon?
1: (laughs) Yeah, people are going to start freaking out. So um, for something like a vaccine in the phase one, you do want to check out for adverse events. Because typically people have some kind of reaction to a vaccine, okay? A lot of times you can have soreness in the place where it's administered. Some people get fevers, chills. They can have almost like the early symptoms of a flu or a cold or something. Uh, And it depends on the kind of vaccine, blah, blah, blah. But you do want to check for adverse events. Usually that only takes a little bit of time. Okay. Right? So for example, in the Pfizer one, a couple of the administrations were a first shot and then a booster three weeks later. Okay. Okay. So to check for adverse events, you want to add at least a week or two after that right. to make sure people are safe. How right? many fucking boosters am I going to have to take for COVID, man? I think that's a really interesting question because it's going to depend on how long the immunity lasts for.
0: We'll get there later. Well, that's a lot. That's a big subject, right?
1: I mean, it is a big subject, but that's actually, I think, part of why the phase two might take longer oh. is because you want to know how long are you going to have antibodies around for right and how long are you going to be protected from covid for and and again there's
0: a certain minimum amount of time here because you have to just observe
1: right right you have to be there to be taking people's blood and checking the antibody levels and seeing whether you know you still have neutralizing effect right on the virus
0: if you just blow through phase two and it turns out people have a
1: negative effect in week three then you fucked up, right? Right, and if this vaccine with a shot and a booster lasts for two months, is that long enough for us to give that to people? Right. You know? two months. Not Jenna McCarthy. Well, it's just, you know, maybe if it's a year, people will come back year after year to get it, you know? Maybe a year is a long enough period of time of protection that this vaccine would be worth it. Right. But if it's like a couple of months... That might just not be a good enough vaccine, right? Because every be
0: time you you risk losing people who just aren't gonna come in, right? I have a confession, I didn't get the flu vaccine last year.
1: Ooh, it yeah. wasn't it wasn't like a like a weird protest reason. It's just <laughs> you forgot. I just yeah I just didn't do it. <laughs> yeah yeah I got the flu vaccine because I'm a good boy. Yeah yeah yeah. But also because since I work in a lab on a campus with. A hospital and shit, there's a very big push to get all UCLA employees vaccinated.
0: Whereas I just work in LAX, which is a major, <laughs> uh, you know, a major thoroughfare. I have no reason to worry about diseases ever. Yeah, but you're like an actual worker. That's you know true. I mean? And I'm so nobody central. cares about
1: you. Yeah, that,
0: that's true. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, I merely bring myself up in my own foibles to imply that like the more steps there is to get people vaccinated, the more boosters you have to have, the
1: the shorter the immunity given more people might fall off and not do it. Right, and that is one of the reasons why uh, in the Pfizer study, one of the things they tested was a high single dose to see if it worked as well as two lower doses. how to do? Not as well, but... Shit! But there there was some protection. I don't okay. trust
0: Pfizer, though.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> do
0: you? Like, not, not about them lying about the results, but, like, they're
1: probably going to charge $5 billion for a vaccine. In terms of price for stuff i don't have any reason to trust any pharmaceutical company that's what i'm saying as far as that goes but we gotta own the means of production bro (laughs) like definitely
0: (laughs) i'm talking to you griffin okay you you go to texas with our communist message this is like (laughs) a whole other discussion
1: about like what the u.s should be doing we're getting too far out there so we're
0: on phase two trials we have to wait a little bit to see if there's adverse effects right and how long
1: depends. No, adverse effects and efficacy. Right. If right. it actually works at all. Right. Right. And those two things can take a variable amount of time depending on what you're looking at. Right. Okay. And then the last thing I want to say about phase two is that this usually weeds out half the drugs that make it through phase one. So phase one, we've weeded out 30 percent. Phase right. two, we've weeded out 50 percent. Yeah. 50 percent of the 70 percent that made it through phase one. Right. Damn. So, so already we're cutting things down pretty far, and that's simply because even if something doesn't cause a lot of negative effects in a person, doesn't mean it actually does the thing you want it to right.
0: do. <laughs> and modern medicine must be like pretty crazy compounds, right? Like they're pretty complex, got a lot of benzene rings or something on yeah, there, sure. right? Wow, like, nice. <laughs> and so like I always hear that like the cost of making new medicine is kind of high,
1: right? Because like we've already done all the low hanging fruit. I mean that. I do think that there's some truth to that. There's a lot of what we're learning about different tactics to fight cancer or something like that. That does mean that, you know, quote unquote, there might be sort of low hanging fruit. But the big concern is... Sometimes you just don't know what's going to work all that well. Right. I mean, you, Sean David Allen, you're one of those thick, big dick players
0: swimming in a blue ocean. You're trying to find new mechanisms and delivery systems that can open up whole new doors for different types of medication, right? Yeah, for cancer treatments. Yeah. You're so thick. <laughs> I know you're my biological brother, but you're so handsome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I, I hope, I hope you were speechless there for a second. I hope there's at least one listener that likes hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know? Mom does. Mom's <laughs> like, oh, you know, my boys love each other. <laughs> Instead of just
1: bumming everybody out, <laughs> which I'm concerned about.
0: Okay, okay but, but okay. So 50% get weeded out. Fa 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 fa. Now we're on to phase three. Right. If you're one
1: of the select few. Yes. And so phase three. This is a big boy phase. Okay. In that if you if you can get your drug through phase three, you can get your drug approved by like the FDA. Sweet, last phase. So some drugs go through what's called a phase four, (laughs) but phase three is realistically the last phase before it can be used in some sick actual people.
0: We've designed the Matterhorn, we're Imagineers
1: at Disney, (laughs) (laughs) and we just gotta make sure no one flies off the cart. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so one thing I will say is in rare cases, phase two clinical trials can be good enough For certain kinds of approval. Like if there's something really urgent. Kind of like a COVID situation. Right. So for example, China has approved a vaccine for the use in the military after it got through phase two clinical trials.
0: Aren't there just so many nouns in there that make you worried? (laughs) Right? Because it's like, okay, well, it's it's China. And I don't want to besmirch China, but they're a little opaque sometimes about their science, right? Yes. Okay. So, So that's step one concern. Step two, it's like, like I get why military readiness is always a little bit important. We live in sometimes a Hobbesian world. But you know, they're having this border conflict with India, right? Sure. Why did why do they gotta give their military an experimental vaccine so quick, right? I mean, I will like, say,
1: it, it's interesting. There is a pretty long history of the military being guinea pigs for treatments and therapies like For, like, this. all sorts of shit. Yeah.
0: For cigarette advertising. <laughs> <laughs> Smoke up, boys, and kill the Huns.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, boy. Yeah. Yes,
1: yes, I agree with you.
0: I'm not racist. <laughs> America was racist. They were racist. Yeah.
1: I'm just saying what they said. Yeah. Okay, I agree with you. Okay, but basically, okay, phase three. If you can get through this, you're sitting pretty, right? Basically, this is when you're going up to a really big trial to confirm what you saw in phase two. 300 to 3,000 people. Right. And a lot of times these go on for a few years. Damn. Because you really want to know what are all the effects that we're talking about. We're about to go to FDA approval. We're about to be using this in patients, in hospitals. Right. You're going to have an ad, like late night on Adult Swim. And you better say all the
0: things it could do to a person right? Or exactly. else you're liable.
1: So, so this one kills off around 40% of drugs that make it to this point. Wow, shit. Okay, so most drugs fail at some point. Yes, yes. A Damn. majority of drugs don't make it. That is one of the things that pharmaceutical companies will talk about when they talk about the cost of drugs. Right. Is that it's not just the cost of developing the successful drug. Right. It's the cost of buying yachts. and having yacht races built into it is the cost of the failed drugs now as well as supporting plutocracy sure I will say (laughs) that sort of something that doesn't go into something they don't mention is that a lot of money right now that gets spent in pharmaceutical company sort of revenue shits or whatever is lobbying and advertising direct to consumers and freemason orgies and (laughs) (laughs) you got to have like a nice food spread out yeah exactly people are going to get hungry eat calamari (laughs) they need to energy up (laughs) 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 got to keep the blood sugar up oh jesus anyway but so pharmaceutical companies all that shit. that's a little complicated but the point is there are a lot of drugs that fail along this path right and so phase three is kind of the last phase you have to do and then there's phase four right and phase four there's not much to say about it except that it it's a little different because it's a post-approval post-marketing surveillance trial i like it so we've already the fda said yes uh we're already trying to sell it (laughs) uh let's just double check real quick yeah so you're going to keep collecting some data to make sure that the adverse events that you saw in phase one and maybe phase two that like Okay, we're seeing kind of the same levels once we went out into the full population. Right. We have two scientists following Bob Dole. He's on Viagra. What is he going to do with it? Right. And every once in a while, a drug that gets approved for something else can, instead of going through all the phases over again, if you want to try it out for a new disease, you might not need to do a phase one all over again.
0: Right. right?
1: I I mean, I'm on a medication called gabapentin that was initially
0: for seizures, I think. Uh, and happens to help with something else. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I take it for that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's small doses. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting how there's like all sorts of weird leaps like that. But like, you know, my psychiatrist is telling me about this drug and they have such interesting histories after they've been FDA approved for something else entirely different.
1: Right. Yes. I mean, especially in sort of neuropharmacology. Because the
0: brain is fucked and metaphysical and God created our souls. And so like, you know, how medication works with that soma uh hemlock you know all sorts of
1: weird stuff it's, it gets really complicated It's complicated but this happens a lot with cancer drugs also right cancer drugs might get approved for a very specific cancer and approved for a very specific indication in cancer like it'll be approved for breast cancer after something else failed right. and then they'll go back and they'll try it out and they'll be like oh let's also approve this for colon cancer or something yeah. right you know the craziest one for me was prayer is I used prayer (laughs) to help with
0: my erectile dysfunction, but then prayer helped limit gun violence. And so it was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) Prayer is another one of those uh, uh, phase four kind of
1: drugs. You used this joke to say all kinds of shit. (laughs) (laughs) That that was a beautiful delivery mechanism. (laughs) I know. Okay. I'm like a phage. (laughs) I'm just scoring into your cell all my DNA. All right. So to wrap up the phases portion of this, I just want to say overall... About 13.8% of drugs make it from phase one to approval. It's not a lot of drugs. Poor pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. No wonder they buy Wu-Tang albums. (laughs) So this actually varies a lot based on the kind of drug that it is. Okay, Vaccines have a tendency to have a much higher approval rate, about 33%. Whereas cancer drugs tend to be much lower, like 3.4%. Cancer's a weirdo. Yeah, and uh, it can be kind of hard. I think with vaccines, we actually have a little bit better idea of how to make relatively good ones now. Right. Whereas cancer is still wild west. There's a lot of different kinds of cancer. Right. But 3.4 is actually an improvement over the years. So things might be getting better. Drugs that use biomarkers to stratify their patient population seem to have a better success rate. Okay. And (laughs) what that means is that if you try to, for example, people who have breast cancer, right? Right. There's different kinds of breast cancer. Right. On like a molecular level. Ooh. And so if you do a test first and you Ooh. find out, oh, this person has this type of breast cancer, this person has triple negative breast cancer, or this person has BRCA mutant breast cancer. You gotta stop saying all this sexy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> when you know kind of more specifically. Right. A specific kind of patient. Right. Drugs have a tendency to have a better success rate because you got more specific. Hmm. Okay. It's a really naughty movie. What? Osmosis Jones, 12 molecular breasts. <laughs> cancer <laughs> wow okay but in any case that means that these biomarkers when we find them they make biological sense okay. as a grouping of people to better treat them specifically right. so
0: the smarter we are in designing our the people that are
1: in our trials yes. the better they are right and so i think that there's been a movement to do that to try to have more successful trials but also to have more successful treatments. you and your intersectional scientists <laughs> <laughs> all right So let's take a break, and then when we get back, I want to talk about some of the details of how you design clinical trials and the ways that that can affect whether you should trust one or not.
0: You know, I was worried this episode would be too short, but we filled it with a lot of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, we've said a lot of
1: words. (laughs) (laughs) The following is an actual advertisement. Life on a spaceship can be boring. That's what I hear, though life aboard the Oz-9 is mostly about careening from one near disaster to the next. To fend off boredom, gated galaxies outfitted their ships with a number of challenges, like bombs, poisoned crew meals, and assassins. One nice thing they did, and we can only assume it was accidental, was to include the old-time Earth podcast Grand Rapidians Play Video Games. Hosted by video game world record holders Willie, Ginger, and usually Simon, they review beers, describe video games, recommend other podcasts, and generally crack wise and have a grand old time. Not that we can enjoy any of the things they recommend, but whatever. Grand Rapidians Play Video Games, available wherever you listen to podcasts. All
0: right. Okay, guys, we're back. We're talking about clinical trials. We've done all our phases, but there are so many important nuances. Sean, tell me about these sexual things.
1: Yeah. This next chunk of the episode is something where if people are reading about a clinical trial... right. I would like them to have this information so that they can better evaluate what they think about the clinical trials. That's the main impetus from my point of
0: view of this episode is like you just hear this expression thrown all around as if they're
1: monolithic. Right. There's a lot of ways to do clinical trials. Right. And some clinical trials that get published and talked about in the media are garbage and right. some of them are very good and it's pretty difficult to distinguish between the two unless you have at least a little bit of information. Right. Like that early French chloroquine
0: study. Right. That's problematic on two levels, right? It's chloroquine and it's French. <laughs> yeah, <Right>? that,
1: that's <laughs> double problematic. Right,
0: right. There's actually two important categories I'm going to talk about and it's not French and French <laughs> studies. And you got to take them both with different grains of salt. But the
1: thing is they're not uh, multiplicative. So it's not like two negatives make a positive. Right, right, It just right. gets more negative. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> that, that's enough dunking <laughs> on the French. Um, I actually quite like France. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I like gypsy jazz. Okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um. So the first thing I want to talk about is sample size. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: What? Yeah. Talk about
1: sample size. Oh, okay. I'm leaning you in. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> You're like Ella Fitzgerald. So <laughs> sample size is talking about how many people are in your study... And a lot of times, if you're doing several different kinds of treatments, how many people are getting each one of those different treatments? You're just doing jazz now, is that what's happening? Well, like you're the singer and I'm your accompaniment. Oh, okay. So bigger <laughs> sample sizes, the bigger the sample size, the more you can be confident about your results and the statistical comparisons that you make. That makes sense. Between your drug and placebo. Right. Or no treatment, another drug, whatever. This is why I hate talking to people about these things because you know
0: people are always anecdotal. And they're like, I don't know. Like, bullhorn worked for me. Yeah. And you're like, "Ah, I don't know, though, man. Shit. Shut up.
1: Yeah. So the bigger the trial, the more expensive and time consuming it is. You have to enroll these people. You need to get a lot of information from them about what their lives are like in case you need to do statistical measures to, like, divide people up. Right. And so that can be time consuming and cost a lot of money. And so you want to have kind of a ballpark of what size is within reason. Right. Because you could just say, oh, well, you want good clinical trials. Make sure every clinical trial has like 10,000 people in it. But maybe you don't got that good money. Right. And also, sometimes gathering 10,000 people that are sick with a particular disease might be kind of hard to pull off depending on the disease. Right. So you want to make your trial small enough to not be wasteful from a money and time perspective. Because, hey, if you take 10 years doing a clinical trial when it could have been in three years, that might be people dying that didn't have to die. That's interesting. So this is something that actually scales
0: to the benefit of COVID research because it's blown up and there's so many people right now. And there's such interest in developing treatment that
1: like you can... Probably have more leeway with sample sizes than usually you would so to some extent yes but there's another issue that's going on which right. is people are trying a lot of different things right so there's actually a lot of clinical trials trying to recruit people and a lot of clinical trials that are stalling out because there's not enough people that oh. aren't in a different clinical trial or aren't getting treated some other way or are saying i heard hydroxychloroquine is good i don't want to be in your trial for this drug because I want hydroxychloroquine. Right. Or something like a lot
0: that. of people are trying to do trials, and a lot of people are both doing trials in the other treatment, which is going to a Florida beach.
1: Yeah. That messes up your trial. Yeah. And also, you know, in places like China, for example, where the case numbers have dropped a lot since before, yeah. there were some clinical trials that were enrolling people for a while, trying to reach a certain number, but then the case numbers started dropping before they could finish. Right. That's interesting. So there's all kinds of issues where you try to balance between the size of your trial. You
0: know, I had a funny, really annoying conversation uh, where someone was like, Korea has like kind of a rate of 50 to 100 people per day or something. Like it has, it's not eradicated in South Korea. Sure. And then China, it's like zero or two for the last two months. Someone was like, look at China covering up its numbers. And I was like, look, maybe there's more than zero people in China who have it right now. Like, I believe that. But if it was actually America levels, we'd of course hear about it sure we fucking did <laughs> yes. like conspiracy theories i'm so sick of them
1: yeah and just like all conspiracy theories they'll mix in something true with something that's like way too far right and isn't true right so has china underreported? probably the entire time right i buy it did nazi warner von brahm help the american moon project yes
0: we still went to the moon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and there's probably not Nazis living there in a base. But, you know, whatever. There probably, are ah! probably not. Okay. <laughs> so you want to make your trial small enough to not be wasteful, but also big enough to keep what's called Type One and Type Two errors low. Okay, and so Type One errors normally in a trial you have what's called a null hypothesis which is typically that your drug sucks and doesn't do anything. Okay. Like that's the way you go into the trial is in your mind you say, my drug doesn't do shit. Right, wow. Okay, and then what you're trying to do is you're trying to gather data that disproves that thought. Okay. If you can disprove the thought that your drug doesn't do anything, then that means that it's got a certain statistical likelihood that it does do something. Okay? okay, cool. And the null hypothesis what you compare it against can be different. It can be it doesn't do anything compared to placebo. It doesn't do anything compared to a drug that's already on the market, etc. Type 1 error is incorrectly rejecting the null hypothesis. So, you do the trial, you say, "Oh, actually, my drug is awesome." Right. When you were wrong. <laughs> okay, sure. And actually it wasn't any better than what you were comparing it. To. We must be humble
0: leaves on the vine
1: (laughs) (laughs) but but this all boils down to statistics okay but a lot of times there's a set of numbers for like what percent error is allowed and usually it's like five percent for phase three clinical trials but you can tweak this based on the circumstances if you're looking at a new drug to treat like aches and pains then you want a really low type one error you don't want to approve a drug for aches and pains that actually doesn't do anything right. <laughs> because we already have shit that you can use for aches and pains. Okay, that makes sense. Whereas if you have a new drug that you're trying to treat a disease, there's no other drug for. Right. And this disease kills the shit out of people. Right. Then sometimes you can be willing to take a little bit more risk on it not actually working all that much because the need is extremely high.
0: Okay, I like that kind of ethics Very, very utility oriented. I like it.
1: (laughs) That's type one error. Right. What's type two, baby? Type two is when you incorrectly fail to reject the null hypothesis. So basically you finish the trial and you get sad because your drug didn't work, but you were wrong. It actually did work. It's just you didn't see the data correctly. Interesting. You didn't see the analysis correctly. Okay. Or you didn't have enough people to see a statistically significant effect. Oh. Okay. And so typically, this error is set between 10 and 20%, but it's not regulated super strictly. You want the error to be low, so you don't mistakenly shit all over your own drug that you spent all that time developing. Right. Right. But to be able to keep it low, you need to enroll a lot of people, and it kind of depends on how big of an effect you're expecting. Like, if you're giving a drug to cancer patients, and what you're hoping for is some extension of lifespan. Right if what you see is like an extension of lifespan on average of like a week, it might be hard to get enough people enrolled for that week to be statistically significant. Okay. Because that's a short period of time. Right, okay. Whereas your trial might only have 50 people untreated, 50 people treated, but if their lifespan extends by like five years, that's really easy to see even if it's only 50 people. Right. Okay, because it's such a huge difference. All right, so part of it boils into like what effect you're actually expecting to see from effective treatment. Okay. Well, are there any other things we have to keep in mind when we're designing a clinical trial? Right. So one set of things is around stratification and randomization. Right. Okay. So I think a lot of people or some people when they're reading about clinical trials might see the acronym RCT, which means randomized clinical trial. Okay. It's very common because randomization is typically important for the clinical trial being good. If you see a clinical trial being non-randomized, I would take it with a pretty huge grain of salt. Right. Okay. Stratification is when you take people into your trial and you split them into groups for statistical comparison that aren't just treatment groups. Like Mm. men and women for certain kinds of treatments, you might think men and women might be affected by this treatment differently. Low and high IQ. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So, for example, like I said, sex, age, severity of symptoms... A lot of other options. Okay, cool. And so your sample size gets diluted as you stratify. Right, you have your sample size is smaller. Right, you're cutting them into little more kind of granular slices. Right. And when you do that, your statistics can get really fucked up very quickly. So you need to keep your stratification in mind when you're deciding how many people to put into the trial. Right. If you're going to slice it into really small things like, oh, age groups and how severe their symptoms are. Right. Then you're going to need a lot more people in that trial. Right. Because you might end up, some of those groups might be, have, like, two people in it. Right. right. So you need to you need to have a lot of people in there. And you want to try to make sure that when you do stratification, it has some kind of biological relevance and is clinically important. Right. You otherwise, can't
0: just pull these out of your ass.
1: Yeah. And you probably don't want to because it inflates your sample size and cost. Right. right. So, for example, some drugs might affect women to a different degree than men. You can imagine a trial where everyone is grouped together and you don't really see an effect of the drug when they're all together. But if you separate out men and women, you might see, oh, there is a statistically significant effect in women, but not men. Right. And then there's also a situation where you're enrolling people. You didn't enroll very many women. So when you try to stratify, you don't see anything anyway. So you need to make sure that you have enough people put into there. Good trials typically randomize the treatment after stratification to eliminate bias. And so randomization just means when you have your pool of people you're going to treat, who gets the placebo? Who gets the drug treatment? Right. You want to control for whatever you're going to stratify based off of. And then after that, you want it to be random. You don't want to cherry pick people you think are going to respond best or not. Right. So Unless so. you're racist. <laughs> <laughs> or unless you're trying to sneak something past us. Right? right. A lot of, and just to be fair about this, stratification happening before randomization means you're specifically choosing stuff to not randomize. When you pick something to be a stratification option, you're explicitly not randomizing on that. Right. And that decision, somebody else might disagree with. Right. So, for example, some people stratify their COVID treatments based on severity. And some people are like, okay, that particular treatment, when you stratify based on severity, that means like, oh, sure, it helps people who were not very sick. Right. And this is something that we'll get into later. Right. But it's like who gives a shit if it helps people who aren't very sick. Right. Like I want to know, you know, can I give this to everybody or like right. I wanted to know is this good for severe people or you know whatever. So people can disagree on the choice of stratifying and not. And then another thing that I've sort of this nuance is something that I've picked up on during this COVID pandemic, but it's a look at endpoints. Okay. So that's how you decide if your drug is working at all or not. Okay? Now, there are your markers for success. Some of them are kind of obvious. If it's like, there's a disease that can kill you. Do people live or die? Right, exactly. And so those are like extremely straightforward endpoints. But sometimes it takes a while. Okay. Right? Like if you think about it, some diseases, it can take months for you to die. Sure. Okay. And so in some cases for expediency, people want secondary endpoints that can kind of maybe help predict how things are going. Okay. Like in some diseases be like, oh their breathing gets better. Their oxygen levels get better, right? And it's like, oh, maybe that's kind of like a proxy for whether right. or not they're going to But we have to be die. careful because those are proxies. Right, and some of those proxies are good and meaningful, and other ones are ones that we sort of decided were good, but right. it ends up not being related at all. Right, if the proxy is that Donald Trump is briefly happy, then like, <laughs> I don't know if hydroxychloroquine, this trial is useful. Yeah, I mean, it's just these surrogate measurements, you need to feel good about the correlation between the surrogates and the actual big outcome. You know, so if you care about cure or extended survival or better quality of life, not dying, but what you're looking at are like chest x-ray scans or blood oxygen levels, how well do those things match up to the things you actually care about? Right. Especially for things like a novel disease, like COVID. Right. That's something that our opinions have changed pretty rapidly over time.
0: Right. People always forget this. It's fucking new.
1: Yeah. So some measures we thought were good intermediate measures actually ended up not being related to survival at all. Like the weather being summer. <laughs> we thought that was a good measure.
0: You're dumb! It's a new disease! You don't know that! <laughs> like, what are you talking
1: about? So, it's ass
0: blasting favelas. It's hot there all the time!
1: So, yeah, so that's the end point situation. Should we take a break here? Yeah, I'll take then... a
0: quick musical interlude. And after the musical interlude, we will discuss...
1: Yeah, like controls and stuff like that.
0: So, I just walked into a thing. I'm shirtless and almost naked, and I'm really sticky. It's kind of hot in here. And Sean's birthday, by the way, was July 2nd. That is true. Sean is now 29, and he's handsome and beautiful. <laughs> You're 35? I'm 33. Okay, he's great looking.
1: I found out that a fellow <laughs> podcaster for a podcast called Planthropology. Yeah? A student a dude named Vikram. Yeah? Same day, same age as me. Oh, wow. <laughs> he was the one that liked a lot of your... Um, Lord of the Rings references. Hey,
0: here's one for you right now. I want a show about the Blue Wizards. I want them to go east and then meet the new Avatar TV show. Okay, I want the Blue Wizards to go and be a part of the new TV show and be like, oh, fuck, what are you guys doing over here? And they're like, we bend. And they're like, dude, bro, back over there. These crazy guys are making orcs. We're like fighting World War One over there, bro. Like, we need some of your bending.
1: That's beautiful. I want that. All right. Well, there you have it, Vikram. It's called Blue Bendis. Okay. So, uh, thanks for coming back, everybody. I'm sorry that that's what happened. But one of the things I (laughs) want to talk about with the clinical trials is about controls. And so there's three kinds of controls that happen in clinical trials. Okay. Tell me about the first one, baby. The first one is called historical controls. I don't trust history. That's a humanity. That's a good instinct. Because, so historical <laughs> controls mean that basically you don't have a control group yourself. Mm. You're comparing to some other result in the past. Okay. So you're treating patients with whatever your drug is, and then you're comparing that to historical data that someone else has published. Right. from Right. It's like Megan McArdle on the News Left, Right, and Center.
0: She was like, oh, well, I don't know if reform's going to matter now, because back in the 1960s it didn't pan out. That's my control group. And you're like, well, <laughs> I feel like... There are some different things going on in the 1960s.
1: Well, this is also related to, like, the hydroxychloroquine trials. A lot of times the French doctor in control of them said that it was unethical to not treat all the patients with hydroxychloroquine. So literally none of them were a control group. Wow. So there's nothing to compare them to. And then he, he said, you know, compared to other people's studies, this seems better or whatever. Right. You know, on one hand, it is way easier to not have to put any of your patients in a control group. That's convenient. He, yeah, you can just use all of them for your drug. On the other hand. Yeah, there's a lot of bias. There's a lot of bias. You can't randomize your group. Historical data needs to be a really, really good match for what you're doing and the endpoints you're looking at. Because otherwise it just won't match up. You can't make an apples to oranges comparison. That is, Why would you do that? So, generally, if something has historical controls or no control group, I do not consider them good. Right. There are some cases where the other controls are not so doable or hard to pull off. In some device trials, where you're trying to see if, like, a certain kind of device works well or not, it can be hard to do a placebo because, like, literally it's being hooked up to a machine... It's, like, difficult to trick a person about whether or not they're getting hooked up to a machine. Oh, I see. It's just, like, physically there. Right, okay. And in, like, occasionally some trials, ethically, some people argue that it's hard to do a placebo because you pretty much know that on a placebo a person will die. And it's, like, kind of unethical. Right, To just, okay. like, directly let someone die.
0: That makes sense. Okay, so there's certain trials where maybe historical is just what we need to rely on.
1: Yeah, maybe. So then... I kind of mentioned it already, but placebo is one of the other really common controls. Uh, This is probably the most standard for early trials where you're first trying to investigate like a new drug. Like acupuncture. Well, there was a kind of placebo-esque thing. Listen to our episode on acupuncture, guys. But basically the idea is that you want to remove the biases that come from someone noticeably not getting any kind of pill or something, right? You don't want them to feel left out there's a certain kind of effect that that can have on somebody and that can end up sort of changing the outcome of a trial. So you want to give them something, but something that you don't expect will have an effect on them. Okay. And then the last one is an active control. And for some later kinds of experiments, you'll use it along with the placebo control. So you'll have one group get placebo and then another group you'll get an active, which means that it's another drug that treats the disease, but it's one that's already approved. And you're kind of benchmarking your drug against one that already exists. Sometimes you want to compare your hot new drug to a treatment that's already on the market. Right. Ibuprofen is your
0: control. You have a placebo. And then acupuncture. How is acupuncture vis-a-vis ibuprofen?
1: Sure. Yeah. For like treating aches or something. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. All right. And then sort of part of this comes in the concept of blinding. Okay, right. and so there are known psychological effects that can bias responses to treatment, right? Like the placebo or nocebo. Effects.
0: I looked this up for the episode etymologically. This goes back to the Byzantine practice of blinding political opponents. If you <laughs> ousted an empire, you would blind them and then give them a drug. And sometimes the hemlock didn't work because they didn't see that it was hemlock. If you told them it was sugar. It actually did not have the same effect.
1: That's a beautiful lie. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Fuck you,
0: Sean. In
1: Crusader Kings 2, you can blind a lot of people if you're (laughs) the business Empire. That's true. Anyway, the place that I see blinding come up most often is in therapeutic clinical trials. And the idea is that you want to make sure that the patients don't know what they're getting. But sometimes you also blind the people giving the therapeutic. Right. double blind, right? Right. And those are double blind trials. And that means that the doctors or nurses or whatever who are giving the pills to the patient or giving them a certain IV bag of treatment do not know what's in there. Right. In Byzantine times, it's where you blind the person, but you would also blind the blinder. <laughs> the, the blind, blinding the blind. Yeah. <laughs> um. Sounds like a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> yes. Ah, uh. <laughs> oh, you just picked my cheek! Yeah, yeah so... Um, part of this can be because, you know, somebody receiving a treatment might feel more energetic and optimistic because they know they're getting something. Cool. And then also nurses and doctors might treat patients differently if they know that, oh, this person's not getting the drug or something. They might care more for a person who's getting placebo because they're worried and they know they're not getting it. Right. So there's all kinds of little biases. Fucking humans. Yes. So double blinding means... Both of them don't get to know. And if you can pull that off, then usually that's one of the best ways to reduce those biases. And then the last thing that I'm gonna talk about for clinical trials is something called effect size. Okay, what are you talking about? Yeah, so this is actually something that we talked about or we alluded to a little bit earlier. And that has to do with how big of an impact the successful drug is expected to have. So we mentioned like, oh, are you gonna live a week longer? Or are you gonna live years longer? And, you know, some people might wonder why that matters when it comes into, like, control groups and everything. Give me an example, baby. Sure. So, you don't really need control groups, like a placebo, for testing parachutes. Some people, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just, historical data might be good enough. (laughs) Right, okay. If you fall from a very great height, you're probably going to be grievously injured or die. Right. Right. And so you don't need to design an experiment where half the people get pushed out of a plane without a parachute and half do to know that parachutes are useful. So, the thing about the parachute example is that the effect size is very large and very clear. Okay. The difference between having a parachute and not having a parachute is like all of your bones being broken and you dying. right? Right. And so, because we have a pretty good understanding of physics and what happens to human bodies when they fall off of something or are moving very fast and then suddenly not moving at all. (laughs) Uh, That effect size is clear enough that we don't really need that control group. But for some drugs, this gets complicated. Most treatments, right? and most things we care about for human health are not as clear-cut
0: as a parachute. Right. If a drug could, as one of its negative externalities, if a drug causes headaches or not, we kind of care about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, and we want to know details of like, okay, this can cure the cancer you have now but five years later you're likely to get another kind of cancer that would be this is, this is all information that we want to know about and can impact whether the drug gets approved or not and for that we do need placebos to compare against okay and so if you take the flu for example a lot of people die from the flu but many many people do not die from the flu which is why survive. why are we wearing masks Why are we <laughs> just kidding <laughs> well uh, so it's just sometimes people ask like why don't we have a cure for the flu right So many people get it. A lot of people do die from the flu. Right. But the reality is that if you're trying to develop a drug that keeps people from dying from the flu, and the people that you enroll in the trial are people with the flu, just like in general, people with the flu, nearly all of those people are never going to die in the first place. Right. So the fraction of those people that you're saving, the effect size of treatment versus no treatment is very small. And this is where we start to dive into COVID territory. Yeah. And so sometimes it can be very hard very very hard to be able to see if a drug is working or not right because compared to your control group it's like oh control group 99% survive when getting a placebo and then on my drug 100% survive but that one percent difference might not be statistically significant and you might not be able to get approved on that and this is the problem with the hydroxychloroquine stuff it might be it might be either hydroxychloroquine doesn't do anything or its effect is so small and it's being treated on just, like, people who have COVID but are not severely sick, right? Mildly sick people. Most of those people do not die. And so in some of those cases, it might be the case where, okay, instead we need to take severely sick people and give them a drug and see if we see an effect there. Because the right. effect size should be more noticeable. Right. right. So kind of stratification. Right. Okay. Okay. And when you do something like that, hydroxychloroquine doesn't seem to work at all. (laughs) Bummer. But, you know, some people, some proponents argue, like, oh, biologically, that's not how it works. You need to do it earlier. But how are we supposed to know? Effect size. Right. So that's why you need very good, carefully designed clinical trials with large sample sizes. And so far, when we've done those, hydroxychloroquine still doesn't seem to work very well. So, you know,
0: whatever. As former human being Al Franken used to say, um, reality
1: has a well-known liberal bias. <laughs> <laughs> this is another one of those examples. Ah, that's how we're going. Huh? So, <laughs> so you need big sample sizes. Sometimes you need control groups in a lot of cases because of effect size. Whoa! Well, right? Yeah, that was a
0: fucking that was a lot on clinical trials, y'all. Woo! Okay, guys. Well, hopefully now you can look at the news and it says clinical trial approves new. You know. Butts. Butts. And you can you can really look at that and say, like, well, wait a minute. Tell me about the phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, Alexander Hamilton stuff about it.
1: Yeah. Especially with the covid stuff right now. You know, during normal times, you might only hear these kinds of news about cancer drugs or something. Right. You'll, You'll read an article that's like this trial says that this drug cures cancer or whatever. And if you read the trial, it's like, oh, this is a phase one study where it just shows this drug isn't toxic. And like, right. we, should, we really shouldn't have said any of these words in the news article. Right. That's especially true right now. <laughs> yes. COVID's going on. People want to publish their studies and get a lot of attention for phase one and phase two trials for all kinds of things. Vaccines, treatments, all kinds of stuff. It's so
0: important to have a grain of salt with
1: all this stuff. Right.
0: So much of these phases, what has to be built into them is observation. Time has to pass to know whether this stuff kills people or not. Because can you imagine if we had a COVID vaccine and it killed 1% of people who took it? There goes democracy, guys. Because like <laughs> Jenna McCarthy would become dictator of America.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I think we need this vaccine to be safe and efficacious. And some of that's going to take a little bit of time. It's not going to be immediately apparent. All right, well, let's thank Stacy Song, our sound lord and engineer.
0: But thank you, Stacy, for, you know, our romance.
1: And for the pod. Yes. And then thank you, Father, for life. Yes. And (laughs) also artwork. (laughs) And then thank you to Griffin Allen, who, you know, he made some of those animations. Hopefully, he can start making some of those animations again. I hope that in Texas, they're going to lock him down so he can't run anywhere. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) To our listeners and to the people who reviewed... The yes. people who are on Patreon, thank you so much.
1: Yes, you can head over to patreon.com slash petri dish if you want to toss us a dollar a month or we, something like we that. We would
0: literally have no Panda Express without you.
1: That is accurate. And I wouldn't be able to live. Yes, this guy needs his orange chicken. <laughs> uh, and please, review us if you like us. Uh, if you don't like us, please don't review us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Send me angry emails if yeah, you
0: Yeah, only like fives through threes? <laughs>
1: wow, you're going to go down to three, huh? Only
0: fives. <laughs>
1: Uh, podchaser.com is a great place where you can review us. podchasercom slash dish, but also on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Diddy, and Google Play. Or whatever. I don't know
0: what Castbox is, but if it has a review thing, do that because yeah. apparently
1: everyone's listening to us through Castbox. Yeah, we love you, Castbox. All right, well, <laughs> thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.